Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Dr. Sandra Destradi about her book that's just come out from Bristol University Press in 2023, titled Reluctance in World Politics, Why States Fail to Act Decisively, which really does exactly what the title says. Um, It figures out this question that does definitely happen, turns up in the media not infrequently, and is always a bit of a puzzle. Um, Kind of why states seem to dither around and really not necessarily make a decision or want to do something but then don't do anything about it or all sorts of things like that. Um, This book very helpfully explains this (laughs) and gives us a way to understand what is happening in these situations. So Sandra, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we get into your lovely and very helpful explanation, could you please introduce yourself and explain why you decided to write this book? Yeah, sure. Thanks a lot. And, you know, thanks for this um, for this invitation here. So um, my name is Sandra Destradi. I'm a professor at the University of Freiburg in Germany. Um, currently, I'm a long-term guest professor funded by the German Academic Exchange Service at Reichmann University in Israel currently not in Israel, but in my hometown in Italy, waiting to be able to go back. So that's uh, where I am right now. (laughs) And yeah, so why did I decide to write this book? Um, So I had worked uh, previously during my PhD, especially on India um, as a regional power in South Asia. So I had looked at India's approach to its smaller neighbors, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh, and uh, so the question was, you know, was in, is India really, is it a leading power in this region? Is it helping resolve international crises in this region? And what I'd found out was uh, quite surprisingly that India was pursuing this very inconsistent approach to crisis management, this muddling through in many, many cases. Um, so with that uh, background and that knowledge, uh, I was in Delhi in 2013 doing um, interviews with, you know, uh, foreign policy experts and, and the ministries, etc., um, on a different project. Um, and I remember, you know, sitting in my apartment uh, in Delhi, and at a certain point, um, I had a look at the at the Economist, at the cover of the Economist, um, focusing on Germany with the title "Germany Reluctant Hegemon." And there was this, you know, this picture of the German eagle hiding behind its uh, wing. And 
that was about, you know, Germany not really engaging enough in mitigating the economic crisis in Europe. Germany was indecisive, it was not leading really. So uh, suddenly I thought it might be really interesting to compare what, you know, India was doing in South Asia and Germany um, in Europe in these very different regional contexts. So I started reading about, you know, trying to look for academic analyses of uh, this muddling through this indecisiveness. And I didn't find anything that would really help me in a very systematic way. So I thought, okay, this looks like a really interesting research gap. And in 2014-15, I went, uh, so I applied uh, for a Romanet fellowship at the UI in Florence with this topic and these two case studies. Um, so I had the opportunity to spend a year there um, working on the conceptualization of reluctance. So um, trying, first of all, to you know develop this as an analytical category um, to be applied systematically. Um, I published an article in EJIR uh, on this topic, but this question, you know, also on, on, on the why international actors, including powerful states, but not only, are often reluctant in their foreign policies that remained there and uh, kept, uh, you know, um, uh, was still there. Then I did other things. I took over a professorship in 2016. I had a child, I had a break and all that. And last year, um, I had a sabbatical leave again at the UI, and I finally wrote this book, um, adding Brazil as a case study, doing additional interviews. So it's really qualitative work with interviews and all that. And yeah, and I'm happy that now finally it's written. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a huge accomplishment. Um, congratulations, especially after such a long time and kind of going in and out of it. Um, I'd love to... I'd love to start with one of the pieces you've just mentioned, in fact, um, because I think I can understand why you spent a year on it. Um, it really then builds, allows for the rest of the book to be built. So can we start with how you conceptualize reluctance? Yes, yes. I think that's really important because the term is used, as you said, in, in the media and much commentary here and there, but in a very, you know, colloquial, unspecified manner and so the first thing I really had to do in order to study this systematically was to do a so-called concept building exercise. So to really make this concept useful uh, for academic analyses. And to do this, I, I built on the work by Gary Gertz on social science concepts, which is really great and giving you, you know, guidance on how to do this. So I'm... And so you do things like looking first at the semantic field of the concept. So how is it used? What other things are associated with it? Usually I um, then identified related concepts in the field of IR, which have a few things in common with reluctance, but are not exactly the same. Things like isolationism, exceptionalism, free riding, backpassing, etc. Um, then as a next step, and then it, here it gets really uh, more interesting, important, I identified the, the negative poles of reluctance, so what reluctance is not, the opposite, and the key constitutive dimensions. So what are the, the essential components um, that really make uh, for the essence of reluctance? And the two, those two dimensions are, in my view, hesitation and recalcitrance. Um, and those two are both necessary and jointly sufficient. So they both need to be in place in order for us to be able to talk about reluctance. Um, 
So hesitation basically involves um, and is then operationalized as um, something like a lack of initiative or delaying certain policies, which had a time frame, but you don't stick to it. And flip-flopping, so changing back and forth in a short time period um, uh, within, you know, with reference to a certain issue, a certain crisis, for example. And recalcitrance refers to uh, the pressures that come from outside. So ignoring or rejecting requests by others um, and also even, you know, being obstructionist in a certain sense. So if hesitation and recalcitrance are both in place, this um, this is reluctance uh, in a nutshell. And okay, then I also, you know, distinguished between various levels of hesitation and recalcitrance, which lead, of course, to different intensities of reluctance. But that's uh, secondary, I think, for the moment. Yeah, no, starting with the nutshell, I think makes sense. So thank you for giving us that grounding. Um, I think with that, then we can move to the theoretical framework you were able to construct of kind of what this nutshell then means in practice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, the question driving my book in this, you know, bigger decade long project is really why are international actors including powerful states, but not only, uh, very frequently reluctant in their foreign policies. And to do this, I I build on a lot of approaches uh, from the field of foreign policy analysis, focusing on the interplay of domestic and international factors in foreign policy. I mean, Everyone agrees that there is this mix, of course, of things that happen within the state and and pressures from outside or, um, you know, things that happen in interactions with other actors um, outside abroad. And going back to the two dimensions of reluctance, I would say hesitation is the one more related to the domestic side. So um, here I focus on difficulties in devising clear preferences on a foreign policy issue. And recalcitrance, the other uh, constitutive dimension, is more related to the international side. So it means not being responsive to the demands of international actors, which also very frequently are competing. So being under pressure between different competing expectations. So the very central aspect of my theory is this reductance will emerge if a government faces difficulties in devising clear foreign policy preferences domestically, and at the same time faces competing international pressures and expectations on a certain issue. Okay, so now let's delve a bit into the first uh, part. So why um, can it happen that we have these difficulties in preference formation? So uh, what are possible pathways to that? And um, here I think there are four different alternative uh, pathways and reasons Um, for these difficulties in preference formation. So one of them can be, of course, political weakness. A weak government will find it more difficult to develop a consistent and decisive foreign policy on a specific issue. So this is quite straightforward, of course, as compared to a strong government um, that might be difficult, uh, particularly if there's competition among multiple factions within a co- so-called coalition decision unit. This can be a coalition government uh, in, in a democracy, in a parliamentary system, but it can also be some informal coalition among factions in authoritarian regimes. So uh, it's a model that can uh, work for different kinds of states. So if there is you know, a weak government which is divided on important issues, of course, hesitation 
will be the outcome. It will be difficult to develop uh, clear preferences on the foreign policy issue. I tried to control for this aspect in my case studies, I'm sure we'll talk about that later, uh, by focusing on cases with stable governments. Um, so in order you know, to, to exclude this pathway of, of political weakness as an explanation, at least. Um, a second possible reason for those um, difficulties in preference formation is, uh, in my view, limited capacity. So governments might know what they want, they might have clear goals, but they might face problems in implementing their preferred preferences. Uh, limited capacity can refer also to things like a lack of expertise or understaffing in foreign ministries, but maybe also a lack of coordination or bureaucratic infighting. There's a lot of literature of, on this in the field of, of foreign policy analysis, of course. And I looked for these indicators in my case studies. Um, and I really wanted to include this because so many theories and foreign policy analysis are based on Western cases, on the US mostly, or on European cases. But these capacity problems uh, are really something that matters in, in many countries of the global south, for example, but not only. Um, a third possible reason for these difficulties in preference formation are cognitive problems faced by decision makers. And here I build on the, on the foreign policy analysis literature on so-called bounded rationality in decision making. So um, basically the fact that decision makers might face real problems uh, in, in very difficult situations. This is tough to analyze empirically. Um, without, you know, being able to perform experiments, uh, which, of course, you, you can't if you study past cases uh, with decision makers there. But I focused on situations that might trigger these difficulties in decision making. So very severe crisis, um, time pressure, or also the novelty of a situation of a crisis. So in very severe and very threatening situations under great time pressure or in completely new situations, decision makers are more likely to find it difficult to develop clear preferences to make decisions. And of course, if there's strong pressure from outside, even competing pressures, studies from psychology tell us that this can be even worse. So those cognitive problems of decision makers can be another pathway to the difficulty in, in developing clear preferences about foreign policy. And the fourth and last uh, pathway here are um, normative struggles. So we know that uh, from the literature on norms that there's no norm contestation. This is a very important component, but governments might find it really difficult to develop a clear foreign policy preference on an issue if within the respective society there are disagreements on which the most important norms are that we should follow. So these can take place, you know, between different societal groups, but also maybe between the government and the bureaucracy or different ministries. And they, I think, explain very well some of the contradictions, the flip-flopping that are typical um, of, of hesitation and therefore of reluctance. And those normative struggles, I think they're interesting because they very frequently are the result of the very process of rising. So rethinking, uh, reshaping what kind of country, what kind of power we want to be um, for a country like India, for example, do we want to engage more or, um, you know, should we stick to established norms of uh, non-intervention, etc.? These are debate debates taking place um, in these countries. Okay, so... There are different pathways to sum this up uh, uh, towards those difficulties in preference formation. Um, 
that uh, relate to the domestic component to the uh, hesitation dimension of reluctance. And these are combined with the competing expectations that come from outside, right? Uh, from external actors that can be articulated in various ways as mild appeals, admonitions, exhortations, requests, but they can also involve coercion. There can be a lot of pressure. Right? And um, competing expectations can, you know, exacerbate these difficulties in preference formation. So, uh, you know, to conclude, to sum all of this up, reluctance emerges if a government for one of these four reasons, faces difficulties in preference formation, and at the same time, if it faces competing international expectations. Maybe a few additional small things. I think it's really important um, to say that reluctance, I don't understand it like some of the journalistic literature or the pieces we read. It's not necessarily a kind of failure in foreign policy. So there's a lot of literature dealing with fiascos, with failures, but reluctance shouldn't be conceptualized like that. Quite to the contrary, reluctance can also be like the result of a, of a real, genuinely democratic process. It can be a good thing, so to speak, um, if, you know, if those normative debates, that contestation really leads to a genuine dialogue debate about what kind of foreign policy do we want to uh, follow, for example. The problem is, of course, that if this continues for a long time or if partners and allies get, get disappointed because of, of this reluctance, then it can have a number of um, problematic effects, probably. Yeah, so that was uh, like, uh, <laughs> my theoretical framework. Um, no, that was great. Thank you so much for taking us through that. Um, I think probably I'm not the only one who, as you were explaining that, I was sort of mentally applying it kind of going oh okay that helps that explains that that explains that um but of course the book does this properly right you have real case studies not just my imaginations um to test this on so can you um just outline for us what your case studies are and how you chose them mm -hmm, sure so um i was interested in cases in which reluctance is particularly puzzling in the first place. Um, so I chose, I started from the two countries from which the puzzle emerged in my mind at the beginning uh, when I had this first idea that I described before. Um, and those were India and Germany. Um, and I later added Brazil um, as another case because I really also like to have this cross-regional comparative work spanning global north, global south, and then different world regions. I chose countries that can be considered to be regional powers of important, powerful countries in their respective regions, in South Asia, Europe, and South America. I chose phases during which they had stable governments, so as to exclude at least one of those pathways. Um, so I focused on, on the Modi government in India since 2014, uh, the Merkel era, era in Germany, uh, and the Lula years, the first presidency between 2003 and 2010 in Brazil. So phases of political stability. And what I thought was particularly interesting, puzzling, was the issue of, you know, do these powerful countries engage um, in crisis management in their let's say, extended regional neighborhoods in a decisive way or not. Um, so I focused on crises uh, of which India, Germany and Brazil were not themselves a conflict party, but rather, you know, engaged in crisis management in the extended neighborhoods. Um, so the idea is that, 
you know, they're powerful in their regions. They will want those regions to be stable. Uh, so it would be particularly surprising to find reluctance there. So for India, it shows um, the conflict in Afghanistan between uh, 2014, so starting when um, the BJP-led government of Modi came to power uh, between 2014 and 2021, so the takeover by the Taliban, and uh, another second crisis, um, a serious domestic political crisis in Nepal related to the introduction of a new constitution in 2015-17. For Germany, I focused on crises in the European neighborhood taking place after 2009, so when the Eurozone crisis really catapulted Germany back to the center of European politics. And here I focused on the crisis in Libya in 2011, and later the Ukraine crisis after the Maidan protests and the annexation of Crimea, so from 2014 onwards. And for Brazil... um, I focused on uh, the crisis in Haiti, where Brazil uh, led, was, you know, the leader of a UN mission, uh, MINUSTA, and the conflict in the neighboring Colombia uh, between the FARC uh, rebels and the Colombian government. Uh, So uh, focusing on the years of the first Lula presidency. And I found that there were very different degrees of reluctance in these cases, of regional crisis management. So India was very reluctant in dealing with Afghanistan and Nepal. Germany was clearly reluctant in the Libya crisis, while in in the Ukraine crisis, well, it served as a mediator. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, uh, probably Germany's mediation efforts uh, appear naive in a sense, but we saw Germany gradually getting more and more consistent in its approach to the crisis at that time taking even a leading role with France in mediating. And Brazil was not reluctant in Haiti because it led the mission, uh, of course, and also not reluctant in dealing with a conflict in Colombia because it pursued a very low-key but very consistent approach. So uh, just to reiterate that if there's no hesitation, if there's a very consistent, even though low-key, not very active, but low-key approach, that would not count as reluctant according to my framework. So those were uh, the six cases of crisis management um, that I chose. Thank you for giving that overview. Um, Obviously, I'm now going to ask you about them in more detail, um, but we've got that idea of kind of what the overall picture is. So given that, can you help us understand how we can use your theory of reluctance to understand India's position on the conflict in Afghanistan from 2014 to 2021? Sure. I mean, that's a super interesting case because a very puzzling one, actually, because um, India has always been or has long been clearly interested in the stability of Afghanistan. So it's it's been like a very essential interest of Indian governments not to have a a totally unstable Afghanistan, uh, which is quite close to India, right? Uh, Afghanistan has a troubled relationship with Pakistan. And of course, there's a great fear on the part of India that it can be used and and it was used um, to train terrorist groups able to perhaps, you know, carry out then um, attacks uh, also against India. So the interest in, in having a stable Afghanistan was clearly there. Um, But we saw India being very reluctant during those years, as it had been before, by the way. I start from 2014, but there was a huge continuity also with respect to what India had done uh, during, you know, under the the, uh, Manwan Singh government. So 
there was a, a high degree of hesitation when it came, for example, to providing weapons to the Afghan National Security Forces. Um, and at the same time, India was quite engaged in development cooperation. It's an important donor for Afghanistan. But this also, you know, declined during the period analyzed. There was a lot of flip-flopping, um, undecisiveness on the part of India, this typical muddling through uh, we observe um, there. So um, how can we explain that? Um, I would say this reluctance was very strongly driven by competing expectations. India was under huge pressure, basically, because on the one hand, um, Pakistan doesn't want India to be engaged in Afghanistan at all. And there's there was a clear con, you know, um, understanding in India that getting engaged too much, supporting uh, Afghanistan too much would be a provocation to Pakistan. Right. So on the, on the one hand, this issue, this issue of, you know, not provoking Pakistan too much. And on the other hand, there were Western actors, uh, the U.S. at a certain point, uh, really calling for greater Indian engagement. Um, and there would have been, I would say, also an interest on the part of India in engaging more. But there was this uh, constraint and this pressure on the part of Pakistan not to do so. And this was, you know, combined the domestic side of things, the, you know, by, with difficulties in preference formation um, that were related for one to normative debates and also to some capacity problems, but mainly debates about what kind of actor India should be, um, whether, you know, it should engage internationally as a rising power, um, do more to support Afghanistan here. Um, so being, you know, a responsible actor. Um, and at the same time, the traditional approach of being non-interventionist, of respecting the sovereignty of other countries. And I think these normative debates combined with the tension between um, two groups in the in the domestic foreign policy establishment in India, which uh, Avinash Palival, who write a fan- wrote a fantastic book on, on India's approach to Afghanistan, calls the conciliators versus the partisans. So there was a division in the Indian establishment on how to deal with Afghanistan, which related to normative struggles and met competing international expectations. And all this, you know, combined um, led India to adopt this very reluctant policy in dealing with Afghanistan. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, And obviously the book has loads more detail about each case study than we'll get into here. Um, So for any listeners that are very intrigued by that highlights um, version of it, please do pick up the book itself. Moving on then to your next case study. Um, I admit when I heard, when I saw the title of the book, my mind did immediately jump to Germany. Um, I suppose the the media news reports have gotten to me um, in that I was absolutely not surprised to see Germany as one of your case studies. Um, My brain had immediately gone to Libya in 2011, but of course there's also the Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Um, So can you take us through how your theory of reluctance helps us understand uh, Germany's position on these two issues? Sure. Um, yeah, I think it helps us because by, you know, giving us these very clear um, dimensions of the concept, hesitation and recalcitrance, and a very clear operationalization, it really helps us identify when this reluctance was in place and some cases in which it actually wasn't, right, to be fair and to, you know, uh, do a... Um, 
uh, more have a more nuanced assessment uh, also of, of German policies in this case. So um, 2011 in Libya, I really don't want to go into too many details, but um, you really had Germany flip-flopping, being very, very indecisive um, on how to vote in the UN Security Council. Ultimately, India abstained, uh, India, Germany <laughs> abstained on uh, Resolution 1973 uh, together with the emerging powers, but, you know, in opposition to the US and uh, its traditional allies. So that was a case in which reluctance was very strong. Um, and by contrast, uh, 2014, after the Euromaidan protests, and then in the context of Russians' annexation of Crimea, um, Germany pursued an approach that was reluctant at the beginning, but then increasingly consistent, less and less reluctant. Uh, as I said before, now we know this was very naive to negotiate with, with Russia, but that's not the point here. I think what's interesting is that Germany, you know, as time passed, quite consistently started pursuing a combination of mediation efforts and sanctions and playing a re- leading role in mediation together with France, leading ultimately to the signing of, of the Minsk agreements. So it's not, again, about whether those agreements were, were right with the benefit of insight, but it's about the process and about what the German approach, um, how it was, whether it was determined and responsive. And I think uh, towards, you know, in that phase of the crisis, this, it largely was. I think what's interesting, what I don't do in the book, I do it a bit in the introduction, but what it's interesting now is uh, to apply that notion of reductance and then my theory to the case um, of Germany's approach to uh, Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine now. So you really could see at the beginning uh, of the war in, in, in February after the Russian aggression um, in 2022, you had Germany being extremely reductive. It was almost you know, textbook case um, where Germany adopted policies that really disconcerted its international partners uh, that were incoherent, uh, delaying and all that. So there was really uh, like uh, in the few weeks after the Russian attack of 24 February 2022, um, a debate in Germany about whether to deliver 5,000 helmets to the Ukrainian army. (laughs) and while all many international partners were providing substantial military aid. And later we saw again and again these uh, delays, these discussions. For example, if you remember the discussion on the Leopard tanks and on whether to deliver them, um, that was again a case of muddling through, flip-flopping, and in the end Germany did deliver them. But what we learned from this is, you know, also the damage in terms of um, reputation um, among among your allies, this can this can lead to. So I think um, this understanding of reluctance, which is um, based on a concept uh, that, you know, is, is very clear with an operationalization and all that can ha- help us um, distinguish more clearly cases in which uh, there really is this uh, hesitant, indecisive attitude and cases um, in which actually there are more consistent policies. Mm. No, that's very helpful to unpack. Um, You mentioned earlier with your case studies and of course in the theory that it also helps us understand why countries might not be reluctant. So what can we learn from the example of Brazil? 
Yeah, Brazil is a very interesting case because um, we had, I mean, that was a phase in which uh, Brazil was really active in, in work politics more generally. Um, and I think the leadership of the MINUSTA mission in Haiti uh, is a super interesting case to see, you know, what conditions uh, can or should be in place um, in order to have a very decisive, straightforward, clear foreign policy. So for one, um, there was domestically a broad agreement within Brazil that um, it was right for Brazil to engage uh, in Haiti and also to lead this mission. So um, the government under Lula wanted to increase Brazil's international profile. It wanted to show that Brazil was a responsible power taking care of its region, uh, implicitly also reducing the influence of the US in the region. So this you know, dovetailed very well with a kind of more general foreign policy discourse and preference of the government itself. Then you had the military that uh, was very happy and very interested in getting engaged uh, in this mission because it was a good opportunity also for its troop to gain experience and for the military to strengthen it, its profile in many ways. So there was approval um, on that side. And there were, of course, uh, some critical voices of this mission, but ultimately they were convinced by the arguments of the government that this was a mission meant to stabilize Haiti, not, you know, with a, um, a kind of peace mission um, with a not-too-offensive <laughs> component, in a sense. So agreement at the domestic level, uh, clear foreign policy preferences on the one hand, and on the other hand, there were practically no competing international expectations. Everyone supported Brazil for various reasons. So the US and France didn't want to get engaged in Haiti too much for historical reasons. So they were happy to stay out and delegate things to Brazil. And Latin American countries, there was some, you know, slight opposition to excessive uh, Brazilian leadership, so to say. But in the end, um, despite some initial criticism, um, many countries from Latin America also joined the mission, providing troops. So this was kind of developed into something like a, like a regional endeavor, uh, in a sense. So you had this combination of uh, clear preferences uh, on the one hand, um, and on the other hand, you know, um, converging expectations. Uh, and this all fit together and enabled Brazil to pursue this very clear, straightforward, decisive uh, foreign policy. But as I said before, decisiveness doesn't have to mean, you know, to, to pursue an aggressive or a military uh, supported whatever foreign policy. It can also mean to have a um, low key approach that, however, is very consistent, very clear. And I think uh, the case of Brazil's engagement in Colombia in the civil war is uh, an interesting case in that regard. Uh, Brazil didn't do much. It offered mediation, it offered support. Otherwise, it kept, uh, as I said, a low key approach, also because there was some political distance, uh, so to say, between uh, Lula and, and the government of Colombia. But this was very pursued in a very consistent way. Um, so maybe also because the level of engagement was so low, there wasn't much controversy about it, uh, neither at the domestic nor at the international level. So here it was possible uh, to have this non-reluctant approach, um, also in the case of, of, uh, of Colombia.
that makes um, sense and again is an interesting one um, as well as in combination with the other case studies. I don't know how often we look in depth at Germany, India and Brazil in the same book. Um, so for that alone, it's an interesting combination as well as individually. Um, any theory, though, inevitably raises the question of, OK, so it works for those case studies. <laughs> to what extent might it be more generalizable? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's a chapter in the book where I try to uh, go beyond these cases and to apply my theory to different cases. And I actually believe that um, reluctance is a phenomenon that we observe at so many different levels in practically all fields. I mean, it's not my ambition to really write a book that, um, and I haven't written a book that addresses also, you know, psychological individual dimensions or uh, some societal groups uh, at very different levels. So I I do it for foreign policy issues mostly. Um, But I think it could be applied, uh, you know, also to very different fields. What I do in the book is I apply the theory to to three other things, to different types of crises, to different uh, countries, um, and to different types of actors beyond the nation state, but, you know, very briefly. So concerning different types of crises, I look at um, the Eurozone crisis uh, and again at Germany's approach. Um, so the reader, you know, already knows a bit about Germany during that time. And then I guide them through uh, in a more concise way um, through Germany's approach to the Eurozone crisis, where Germany clearly was reluctant, and that was due to a mix of cognitive problems on the one hand. So I did interviews in Berlin, and there were people in the ministries really telling me uh, we didn't know what to do during that crisis. At the very beginning, it was it was new. We were, you know, completely <laughs> helpless uh, for a while. Combined, of course, with normative struggles about the degree of German engagement leadership uh, in Europe for historical reasons. Um, There has always been this issue of we follow our allies, we keep a low profile, and this started to be at least, you know, to be called into question. And competing expectations because, uh, of course, Southern European countries were very skeptical about anything like German leadership in Europe. So Germany was also faced with these competing pressures. And I think all this explains uh, reluctance uh, during the Eurozone crisis. Then I look at whether my theory works for different kinds of countries. So with India, Germany, Brazil, I looked at what I called uh, regional powers or, you know, powerful countries in a certain regional context. So I was wondering, you know, does my theory uh, travel also for cases of, of small states and of great powers? And I think small states are super interesting because in many cases, they actually don't pursue reluctant policies, but very, very consistent, low-key policies. I would say most small countries uh, rather pursue, pursue um, you know, consistent, non-reluctant, low-key policies. There are examples like, you know, the very activist foreign policy for peace by a country like Norway or the very consistent determined resistance to the U.S. by a country like Cuba. Um, These are not reluctant, right? But then, of course, there are also cases of reluctant small states, and I give some examples like Zambia, etc. Great powers are also super interesting because in that case you would expect, well, even less 
uh, reluctance if you have all the resources you need, so to say, to um, to do a consistent, decisive foreign policy. And here I give um, two examples uh, of reluctance uh, in great powers. One is uh, the United States' approach to the Cyprus crisis in 1974-77. So here, really, the main explanation is political weakness because those were the final uh, was the final phase of the Nixon administration. Um, you know, the Watergate scandal, and the president resigned in August 1974. So that's. One reason for you know not having clear preferences for a while, and also the case of China is very interesting. So there's a recent book by Jones and Hamiri who um, argue that actually there's so many different actors, agencies within the Chinese state uh, that struggle and compete for power among each other, um, and show. So if I apply my framework on that work, I see that um, there are cases uh, where this really explains a very erratic conduct by China, for example, in the South China Sea. So the authors show that there were varying levels of escalation on the part of China in the South China Sea, and they trace it back to the competition, the struggles among those different agencies. So it's really interesting to see that, you know, even in an autocratic regime, which we often think is monolithic, you have these struggles going on that lead to difficulties in devising um, a clear foreign policy course. And then, of course, different types of actors beyond the nation state can be reluctant. I give a few examples um, of the EU, of course, given the many other levels that come in. So I think EU policies um, are also frequently associated with reluctance. But then also things like, you know, local governments, local administrations during the COVID-19 pandemic um, are very good examples of actors facing a completely new crisis uh, leading to those um, difficulties in making clear decisions at the beginning. So I think, yes, um, actually this uh, framework for reluctance can travel uh, well beyond uh, what I've done mostly in my book. That's very helpful and I think probably enticing to listeners to go, hmm, okay, how might this work in whatever case they might be familiar with? In terms of applications of the theory, the other one I'd love to ask you about is, of course, the policy implications of your work. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think there are some. We already touched upon some. Um, I think one important point is, you know, first of all, to acknowledge the existence of this phenomenon, to understand its causes, right? And to see that in many cases, um, for example, failures in international cooperation are not really the result of an an active refusal to act or something like unwillingness on the part of the actors, but rather of this indecisiveness, this hesitation in the process of making the decision or of implementing them. So it's kind of an outcome of more complex processes. I think, you know, decision makers know, but I think it's helpful to give this a framework to, um, and and maybe a language (laughs) to talk about it and to sort things uh, when you see them. Um, The second point is, I think it's important, of course, to understand the causes of reluctance. And 
um, again, what I mentioned before, but I think it's it's um, important to mention this. If, if you read the subtitle of my book, Why States Fail to Act Decisively, um, what comes to the mind of many people is, okay, why don't they, you know, um, attack or do military missions or something? That's not what, what is meant by this. It's really more about, you know, why are they not... Uh, consistent uh, in in what they do. Why don't they pursue a very clear, straightforward uh, course? And I think in some cases, this is really the result of a genuinely democratic process uh, of discussing about the fundamental norms that should guide foreign policy in a country. So it doesn't have to be the result of structural weaknesses. It can be. <laughs> it can be the result of you know a lack of resources, uh, for example, in many countries of the global south. Um, bureaucracies that don't work well and all that. So I think for foreign policymakers interacting with a government that is reluctant, it might be helpful to really understand the reasons of this reluctance. And that might also be useful in order to, you know, maybe develop solutions or help to provide support. And I think some insights here are also important. Um, when it comes to international expectations, international pressure, um, that plays a very important role in my theory of reluctance, right? And so this really thinking about that if countries face competing pressures, reluctance becomes much more likely. This has policy implications. So I think, you know, uncoordinated pressures on a government can have unintended consequences. Maybe it makes more sense to um, take a little more time and rather develop more coordinated uh, ways to um, induce a government uh, perhaps to follow a certain path. And what also I think is important is that governments can be nudged towards engaging if a certain policy does not contradict the main foreign policy norms. I mean, this is also, I think, a very important point, but by putting more pressure from outside, this might you know, ignite or reignite domestic struggles over those norms um, and also lead to unintended consequences. So being careful about how you use this international pressure, I think, is an important part. And I think in you know, trying to understand emerging powers um, and many of the shifts that are going on in, in the world right now, um, I think it's really important to understand that this reluctance can be part and often is an inherent part of a process of rise. So finding yourself in a completely new role um, and having to, to deal with it, um, this might lead to adjustments um, that, that are reflected in reluctance. So I think those are uh, some of the, of the policy implications um, of, of this work. Yeah, and I think they're very important ones. Um, so I'm thank you for taking us through them. Obviously, given the um, generalizableness of the theory as well as the policy implications, I think there's a lot that people can build on from this book. There's a lot of prompts and things it opens up for further research. But what do you think are some of the most interesting areas that it perhaps opens up? <laughs> So I think what I would be really interested in doing more systematically is uh, thinking not just about the causes of reluctance, which I did, but about the consequences. So what does it mean um, to have reluctant actors uh, in 
um, for example, in settings, in multilateral settings, uh, what are the consequences of reluctance for global governance, um, you know, for the provision of global public goods or for peace? Um, I think doing that in a systematic manner uh, would be really interesting, also highly relevant in terms of in terms of policy. And uh, the second point is um, a temporal dimension. So I'm wondering, you know, how long does reluctance work well? Um, because I don't want to say that reluctance is some kind of policy failure or something. But of course, having these highly reluctant policies, as we see in the case of, you know, Germany dealing with Ukraine right now, um, this can lead to disappointment by international partners, by allies. Um, how long can you disappoint them or how long can you uh, adopt this flip-flopping, inconsistent, muddling through approach and and what are the consequences of it? Uh, I think those are, those are really uh, potentially interesting avenues for further research. Very much so. Who knows? Someone listening might be going, ooh, I want to do that. <laughs> that would be nice. Um, yeah, exactly. So obviously, identifying areas for further research um, doesn't necessarily mean that that's what you're going to be doing next. Um, so I will ask, what are you working on now that this book is done? On the next book, <laughs> on a different subject, however. So um, I have a project funded by the German Research Foundation on populism and foreign policy which uh, started, I think, some three years ago. And we have quite a big team, collected tons of data. Uh, it's, again, a cross-regional uh, comparative study where we try to theorize populist foreign policy. Um, and we compare uh, India, Turkey, Brazil, the Philippines, and Italy. So, again, very uh, different case studies from different parts of the world. Um, and we, we seek to develop a theory of reluctance. And uh, we means Johannes Plagemann, my co-author uh, from the Giga in Hamburg, uh, and me. And we have a book contract and we need to write uh, down our findings. So that's uh, what I'm working on right now. Well, best of luck um, with writing that down. The Thank jump you. from we've collected cool stuff. Oh, no, but now we have to write it down <laughs> is not always not always the most fun. But um, the readers on the other side appreciate it. So best of luck with that. Um, and of course, while you're doing that, uh, readers, uh, listeners can read your current book, the one we're discussing, again, titled Reluctance in World Politics, Why States Fail to Act Decisively, published by Bristol University Press in in 2023. Sandra, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much.